Hello and welcome to the Alba Diversity Podcast, an Alba network undertaking to profile and highlight diverse and immigrant neuroscientists. The Alba network aims to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences. We talk to neuroscientists across positions, career paths and backgrounds to better understand their personal journeys. We showcase the grit and determination it takes to overcome hurdles as part of underrepresented or minority groups. We talk about what keeps them going as individuals and as neuroscientists in today's world. Thank you, Shruti, for having me on your podcast. I'm uh, Professor Mehmet Kurt. I'm currently an assistant professor at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. I also have an adjunct position at the Biomedical Engineering and Imaging Institute at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in Manhattan. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. And we can sort of jump right into the questions. So Mehmet, what was the first or when was the first time you thought about brain and, and neurons? That's a very interesting question because the answer might actually surprise you. So I, my bachelor's degree, I got it from Turkey. I'm originally from Turkey, uh, was in mechanical engineering. And um, then I went on to do my PhD studies in the US, uh, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And actually my specialty was still mechanical engineering, um, specifically vibrations. And I always had the urge and intention to do something biomedical related with my research. So after having completed my PhD, I was really looking around to see what the principles that I have used and developed during my PhD studies could be useful for, for uh, towards applications in human health. And um, I had conversations with a professor from Stanford, Professor David Camarillo, who was working on concussions and traumatic brain injury at that time. And I thought that this was a perfect transition, um, you know, from vibrations to the brain. And that's when, that's about, like that's in 2014, so about seven years ago. And that's when I got into it, to be honest. I didn't particularly have a passion for the brain before that or brain sciences, but as soon as I started studying the human brain, I was completely hooked. And actually that kind of, from concussions, I, you know, my research diverged into many different disciplines that we can go into, but that's when I first kind of got introduced to the topic of brain sciences, I guess. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, as a recent entrant into the field, welcome. We always love having Thank you. <laughs> we love having people. I'm sure I'm sure everybody agrees with me, but I personally love having so many different experts come into neuroscience and like try to understand, you know, the brain and the pathologies and the problems because it gives such a beautiful perspective. I mean, as a I I think you are the first mechanical engineer <laughs> I have met who, you know, who talk who thinks about concussion and vibration in sort of a very mechanistic way. And I'm I'm really glad. I'm really glad you're here and I'm really glad in neuroscience. 
um you wanted to understand concussion better you wanted to understand the brain in concussion better how did that sort of grow into oh this is what i want to study for my foreseeable career so uh when i first started working on concussions and basically the response of your brain when you receive an impact right a head blow uh what i realized was that the problem actually was way more complicated than just you know the mechanical response involved obviously i think that was an important question uh that needed to be asked and that was especially from a vibrations point of view when i entered into that field that was quite understudied hmm. um once i started really studying the mechanics of the brain which is really like in, in the case of the concussion it is really a mysterious thing because you know obviously our brains are encased inside our skull so we don't really know what happens at the instant of the impact right to the brain right. from a mechanical perspective so a lot of the researchers including our research group use computational models to right. try to understand that by combining obviously imaging data sets and sensory information from athletes and what not but what what made me really interested in this field further was how complex the actual questions were and how unexplored the relation the importance of mechanics in brain sciences was i think that was kind of what made me realize that, hey i actually want to build my career on that because there are so many unanswered questions in this field earlier and the attraction of not having answers is huge right i think it drives a lot of people in the brain sciences through the time that you've been in neuroscience or you know not even in science but generally in your life have you had sort of mentors and and people who you look up to and can you tell us a little bit more about who they are and and how they've helped you through the way Absolutely. So so I was doing my postdoctoral studies at Stanford and a lot of people helped me there because you know it, in our fields it is really crucial to be able to communicate with clinicians, right? And and also imaging scientists. So for example, I had no medical imaging background when I first started my postdoctoral career but now I'm building a career on medical imaging to study the mechanics of the brain thanks to many amazing mentors at Stanford for instance who believed in what I was bringing to the table you know Absolutely. um and I think that because it is usually hard to find a common language Uh, between scientists who are from different disciplines yeah and uh, that might come across almost off-putting at right. times that uh, but I, i didn't experience that and i think that was an important factor yeah uh, that i i persisted in pursuing uh this line of research in my opinion and yeah i have i mean many people to thank for i i, I don't know even i i probably <laughs> wouldn't want to list them because i'm I I fear that I will leave certain people out but again like a lot of I mean include anywhere from my PhD advisor to uh my you know the people that I worked with at Stanford and actually I mean it's not really the typical definition of a mentor but I actually think one of the most important group of people who had a huge impact on me and my research were my lab mates 
we had such an amazing friendship environment. In fact, we still all <laughs> chat daily with some of them, and we have Zoom calls, and we still connect with each other. Like some of them are still in academia, so oh. and they had a huge effect on me because I have a very collaborative nature, and it is partially, I think, thanks to them because. How, because how it was very organic and friendly and collegial, and it fostered many great ideas that we worked on and we have been working on. And I think those would be actually the people that I would thank the most in, in a way, you know, because the experience of a lab environment could be different for other people. I was super lucky to have amazing people um, that I work with. For sure, for sure. Yeah. No, I I hear where you're coming from 100% because I uh, personally I'm one of those people who who have also benefited from something like this. I mean, in my current lab and in my previous PhD lab, um, I didn't have a word for it back then. It's funny. Uh, but now, <laughs> now I have a word for it, and I heard from a lot of people, and it sounds wonderful to me. Horizontal mentoring. I right? love that. Right? It's not. It's not vertical. Like you're not looking to up to somebody. You know, to ask for their experience or their wisdom. But sometimes just having somebody right next to you, egging you on and saying, "Hey, you know what? You should be doing this," or you like bringing your name up in conversations, going, "Oh, I know. I know somebody who's a mechanical engineer who can actually, you know, answer that question really well." But I'm I'm also glad you bring up you brought up the fact that having a good environment is so important. Like you could be in a a great lab, you could be in like lab with a wonderful PI, but like not having supportive lab mates or not having supportive people around you is is so is is a hard is a hard thing to get over, right? So absolutely, yeah, especially in a. I mean, academia could be, can be very stressful. Sometimes it is induced by the environment itself. Sometimes it's self-induced, and it can be very stressful, right? So, right. to have an environment that is supporting and collegial can make the whole difference. Really. Absolutely, and I think in my case, it did. A little bit of a gear shift. So, uh, do you consider yourself to be part of an immigrant or a minority group? And and have there been times when? Uh, if or when you faced sort of covert or overt discrimination because of this, because of being part of like a group that's not a majority group. Yeah, so um, I'm definitely an immigrant in this country. So I, as I said, I I'm originally from Turkey, and um, I kind of migrated to the U.S. for my PhD uh, in 2010, um, and have been living here ever since. Um, I also identify uh, as a gay man, um, and that is definitely uh, something that I mean. It's a group that I mean, being an LGBTQ plus individual, kind of brings different experiences than uh, other individuals. I was lucky enough not to have any particular challenges or really overt discriminations. However, uh, one of the issues with being an LGBTQ plus individual in STEM and in academia is the invisibility. You are pretty much invisible if you, you know, choose not to. Uh, most of the people that I meet and interact with in a professional setting would assume that I'm uh, a straight man, and that's the that's the assumption. Um, and um, 
that is I mean I had my own struggles to be honest I wasn't out at work for the longest time and I, I have conversations with colleagues about this because there's almost a sentiment there there used to be at least and I'm glad to see that it's changing there used to be the sentiment that hey like that's just your personal business why would you even want to share that in a professional environment however we don't realize how heteronormative the working environment is and actually everybody uh, who uh, work in a STEM environment project heteronormative I mean not everybody in the sense that you know I'm not talking Mostly about every either. individual but exactly the, yeah. the majority right yeah um, projects the heteronormative culture that we accept as LGBTQ plus individuals and I think the struggle is worse not for a gay man like me but for someone who is gender non-conforming right uh who's trans it's the struggle is definitely worse and i have maybe i haven't experienced this uh, on a personal level but in my current institution and other institutions that i worked with i had students uh you know coming to talk to me and asking whether it is okay for them to you know kind of ask people to use their preferred pronouns or mm. is is it okay for them to basically express their gender identity or lack thereof that that's a very i mean i i don't know that's a very pessimistic scenario right that we have mm. to think about that even we have to think about whether that's going to affect our professional um trajectory yeah. it's true that a lot of people try not to Okay, so let me rephrase this. It comes down to like the one thing that's a bugbear for me is that people think that if you're a scientist, your science should not be affected by who you are. Um, and what you do is entirely different from who you are. You're absolutely right in the sense that that's not true at all. There are groups being disadvantaged because of this outlook and just because there are people in the majority who think gender is not important and they're the one who set the rules and they're the one who sit on top and it just so happens that they make it difficult for other people to to be themselves um i guess we're human beings first right rather than being scientists first and we should be able to bring our full selves into what we do absolutely and especially we have to consider the intersectionality of identities right everybody is coming from obviously lgbtq plus is one set of identity but there are other identities that will factor in and the intersections of those identities will lead you towards a different experience so in my case for instance i i'm trying to project what i went through and try to understand what others in our community would go through and what i can say is that i wasn't out for the longest time because i mean everybody again has a different cultural background right mm -hmm. and ha has a different journey but i'm thinking if i had worked in a stem environment that was inclusive in a loud way in a nice. loud manner yeah perhaps it could have helped me with my own personal journey as well Absolutely. right Uh, so, 
as I said, like I wasn't out for a long time and I'm not saying that that's the primary reason, but that is part of the reason. Again, we have to consider intersectionality here. But now I already went through this journey. Now my purpose is like for students who are, you know, 18 years old, 19 years old, struggling with these thoughts. I mean, how hard it must be, especially if you're in a campus environment. Everybody tends to think that they are in these, even if you're in a big city, you're in this campus environment that is uber liberal and whatnot. That's not always the case, right? We uh, Different campuses have different cultures and environments where it might be super hard, especially in STEM fields where there's already a gender imbalance. And, where there are studies that already show that uh, the perception is a heteronormative. You know, the standard perception of the professionalism in STEM is heteronormative. Can you imagine how hard it must be for a student to be out? I'm not even, again, factoring in all the other like personal struggles that they might have with yeah. uh, based on other identities, right? So. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like how I see the situation. I think it's also very generous of you to to pay it forward, right? Like, even though you did have some issues and you had, it took you a while to sort of come out and say, okay, this is who I am and this is, this is what I'm bringing to the table. Not everybody will have um, the time or the courage to stay and to help the next generation of, of scientists and researchers. So for that, I thank you very much. I think it's a, it's a very noble thought and, and not a lot of people will do it. So I'm glad you're doing it. But just in terms of intersectionality, uh, it's, it's something that I'm also trying to understand fully as somebody who is in science, who is from a gender that's underrepresented and, you know, um, the whole package. Um, sometimes it's difficult for me to understand how to help other people, especially with intersectionality. First of all, I struggle sometimes to define it. Like when I'm trying to define it to other people, it gets difficult. Um, I try to usually explain it to them as, you know, having different facets to your personality and all of them are contributing to who you are and like what you think and, you know, your opinions on things. But for somebody as, say, who's as young as, 18, 19, you know, still trying to discover parts of themselves. How would you explain intersectionality to say a young student who's just trying to figure out who they are? In my opinion, like the way I look at intersectionality is that this, like sometimes all of us tend to think about uh, things in discrete categorization. And I think that's when I think about intersectionality, I really mean and dimensions to your identity, right? It really right. is that, right? Um, and we, for example, if I'm interested in, if I'm a researcher, let's say, interested in, you know, amplifying marginalized voices, I cannot look at things from a discrete analysis point of view because that's not gonna amplify everyone equally, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, you're right. I mean, it's a continuous spectrum right. of identities. And it is, uh, I really think this is a topic of science. Like this should be explored in a way where uh, how we, we should approach different kind of cases of intersectionality. Um, but yeah, I mean, in lay terms, that's how I would explain to a young person that you really shouldn't put things in discrete bins because mm -hmm. all of us have many dimensions to ourselves, both in terms of you know, where we are from, what we like, what where we grew up, yeah, uh, yeah. who our families were. I mean, really, it, 
but but I'm encouraged to see, especially the diversity efforts uh, that are led by amazing people, are now really considering intersectionality to be an important cornerstone of what they're doing, and I think that that should be the direction of uh, how we analyze marginalized identities. That's perfect because my sort of next point was going to be about diversity, and and you provided me like the perfect segue into it. Um, intersectionality leading to sort of diversity, but also diversity of thought and diversity of who we are and what we bring to the table. Um, is there any example where you've seen putting sort of diversity in the front? You know, like a lot of people will just use it as, oh, I'm just going to tick this box of diversity when I'm doing other things, like especially in STEM fields, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of people will like try to make um, meetings or boards or like groups or action groups, and then they'll have a couple of people and be like oh we need to have one woman one black person one you know exactly. person of color one person who's of another gender orientation so it becomes a sort of like or a, to- tokenizing exactly you know? it becomes Sorry. like a, a box ticking tokenizing exercise Absolutely. but for me and and i'm sure for the audience too i think it would be great to hear so i would love to hear if you have any examples where having this diversity actually resulted in a better outcome yeah, first, I'll make a comment about what you said, because you made a great point. So I hope I will be able to describe this. So <laughs> I think there is a difference between representation, mm-hmm. actual representation. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. I think placing marginalized identity, like minorities, underrepresented people in committees, that's good branding, I guess, for an institution. But yeah. I don't think that helps the bigger purpose. Right. Right. Uh, Necessarily. I mean, it probably marginally helps in the sense that there I'm definitely not saying that those efforts should be avoided, but it also has drawbacks that now like uh, certain um, underrepresented people might have now a lot of committee responsibilities in academia, for instance, like they're, you know, getting invited to all these panels and, and that might, you know, take its toll on them. So is the solution to invite just a limited number of uh, underrepresented people to all of these committees, or is this right. actually solve this problem at its root, right? And again, right. like. Representation is important. So I'm not saying that, you know, obviously there's a benefit of including having diverse committees, and I think that's great, but right. I, that's not the actual action steps that you know we need to take i I completely agree with your point on that i hope i was able to what you said for me it meant between like token representation and like meaningful representation a representation that that reflects the population diversity i guess that's what exactly exactly that's what i mean mean. so i think there is a difference between that and i can say so i mean i'm going to give one example that i I was part of and I thought that it was a great effort and I'll tell you why. I work with this organization called the STEM Village. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a UK-based organization uh, which aims to increase the visibility of LGBTQ plus individuals in STEM all over the globe. So last summer, we had a virtual uh, seminar series, a conference, a virtual conference across the globe where we invited talks and abstracts in all fields of STEM from LGBTQ plus individuals. And we had, you know, series of talks, invited talks, keynote lectures, seminars, um, 
I mean, this, the conference, you know, itself was great. But what made me super happy was so we had about like 500 participants, and we had participants because we we gave the participants the option to be anonymous if they want choose to be, and we had participants from countries where it was illegal to be LGBTQ plus, and we actually received even emails from people who asked for more guidance about the future of their professional trajectory and whatnot. And I thought that was at least it was obviously like, you know, what we did was quite small, maybe it touched 500 people. But I thought that that was at least that networking and bringing the community together and also showing that, you know, you can be LGBTQ plus and a scientist. Right. Uh, I think it empowered at least some people who yeah. participated and I, I, it made me super happy and i thought that that was a genuine effort and i'm not saying that that organization is the only organization uh that you know um uh, do these type of activities but that was what i directly like personally experienced and all the wonderful people who work at stan village like matthew uh, katie and kiri i mean uh, we all i think did a good job in that and i think uh, it was very successful and now actually all that experience of seeing these people in kind of really tough situations uh, due to their identity. Uh, now we're working with, again, the STEM village, and I'm leading an effort to create a mentorship platform oh, for LGBTQ people in, in STEM. The idea is basically we're going to sign up mentors and mentees, and it's going to be an eight-week program where kind of it's in the development mental stages right now so I'm not sure about the details but it's going to be a program where mentors and mentees will meet weekly and work on a research topic of the mentee's choice and then after several weeks there's going to be a gathering where all the mentees are going to present their projects and these will include high school students if they choose to be an undergraduate students and I, I think those are the type of ways that obviously they're smaller scale because it's done by academics like us. So we're doing it on a smaller scale. But uh, I think those are the type of efforts because if you keep in mind that the purpose is to increase the visibility and representation of a an identity, I think those are the type of actual meaningful efforts that need to be done, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I hear you on that. And I feel like meaningful change, like you defined it so well, happens in smaller steps and happens in smaller groups. And smaller. I feel I feel like maybe we're sort of, you know, this beginning ripples. So, you know, in, in the beginning, the ripples are very small, but as they sort of spread outward, um, I can see like your efforts, for example, definitely, you know, being very far reaching because like you said, all it takes is somebody to come forward and say, it's okay to be who you are in the exactly. field that you want to be. And sometimes you just need to like, listen to it, right? Like you just need somebody to tell you that sentence and, and you should, you need to listen to it to like believe in it actually. Absolutely. Um, to follow up on your question about diversity, obviously, like, as I said, you know, we are just one part of uh, the marginalized identities. Right. Obviously like all of the platforms that uh, we create as part of diversity, equity, inclusion should be anti-racist, mm -hmm. anti-oppression, pro-justice and equity. Th this has to be the case, right. right? I love, I want to quote uh, Audre Lorde, who is an amazing poet and author, and she has a great quote that I love. There is no such thing as a single issue struggle. 
because we do not have single issue lives. She identifies also as an African American uh, lesbian poet, and I, I think she put it better than anybody else can. And I really think this is the principle that we should hold in any outreach efforts. Uh, yeah,、really. and what you said perfectly defines intersectionality. Also, we are not single issue people. We have so many issues we we carry and we care about. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alba Diversity Podcast. To know more about the Alba Network and its activities to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences, please visit alba.network. You can also register as a member for free and take full advantage of the network's resources. For more details, follow the Twitter handle at network underscore alba or alba netbrain on Facebook.